Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio from the KPFK Los Angeles studio. A project of SoCal 350 Climate Action, our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste, and today's guest is Reverend Edward L. Anderson, social activist and ordained minister serving McCarty Memorial Christian Church in West Adams, Los Angeles. Edward L. Anderson is a passionate social activist and ordained minister with degrees from Morehouse College and Claremont School of Theology. He currently serves the historic McCarty Memorial Christian Church located in West Adams neighborhood of Los Angeles. He also works for LA Voice Pico and a co-organizer for Trust Talks LA. Reverend Anderson is an active advocate for Black Lives Matter, a convener and co-chair for the new Poor People's Campaign in California, and is a Bethany and Preston Taylor Fellow. He serves on the board of directors for Claremont School of Theology as well as Progressives Christian Uniting and served on the Crossroads for Women Incorporated Eastmont Community Center, raising the voices of those who are forced to live along the margins of society. Reverend Anderson has been seen and heard on television, radio, and is a published author. It has been said that we are experiencing the largest civil rights movement in global history. People around the world are in the streets marching for black lives and against systems of oppression, violence, and racial injustice, demanding accountability and change not only at the political level, but also within ourselves. Black communities, indigenous, and other communities of color disproportionately bear negative impacts as it relates to environmental safety and access financial, economic, and political support, the criminal justice system, education and healthcare, public safety, housing, transportation, food security, income and employment, you name it. In addition, they more often make up fence and frontline communities to the climate crisis. In the United States, our history is one of genocide and slavery. The institutions that run this country continue to benefit off the repercussions of long-standing systemic oppression and racism. We have been told that our policing system is politically neutral and benefits all equally, but historically, that is not true, and our social order is not equitable by design. How do we reinvent and reimagine the power structure in a city or country? How do we change the economic system and fund a budget that is community-centered? Today, Reverend Edward Anderson will speak to the people's budget, what it means to reimagine policing and public safety, and how to ensure reinvestment back into black communities. Thank you for tuning in to the people's budget and reimagining public safety. At the time of this recording, due to COVID-19, we are all still practicing physical distancing and calling in from our respective homes. So unfortunately, we are not in our normal KPFK Los Angeles studio. Please bear with us with any sound quality issues. It is my honor to welcome our special guest, joining us via phone, Reverend Edward L. Anderson, social activist and ordained minister serving McCarty Memorial Christian Church in West Adams, Los Angeles. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. Thank you, Jeff, for having me on. Thank you for being here. Reverend Anderson, you are an ordained minister serving McCarty Memorial Christian Church in West Adams, Los Angeles. Tell us about your parish and your work in the community. My church has been in Los Angeles for almost 90 years. Uh, It was founded in the 1930s in the middle of the Great Depression, and it was brought together two congregations, and it was meant to be a symbol of hope. Uh, for the community. And so if you can imagine it, people were very depressed and there was a lot of money around. But this doctor, Dr. Isaac McCarty, built a big Gothic cathedral uh, in the middle of West Adams. And uh, that church has been for over 90 years practicing. uh, What does it mean to to practice union, trick religion as intelligent as science, and to actually seek justice? It was one of the first churches in Los Angeles uh, to do integration. And so in the late 50s, the church did integration and it was forced and we lost a lot of our white members. They decided to leave. In the 60s, they did strategic outreach to the black community around. And I have members of my congregation today who remember doing sit-ins because of redlining, who remember uh, the KKK riding down the streets in, in West Adams because they didn't want people to move across Wilshire Boulevard. And they going out and protesting and making their voices heard and having meetings at the church. And so that's what we're doing now. I've been there for about 
uh, five years and revitalizing the congregation and reminding folks that God is always on the side of the oppressed. And right now uh, we are currently feeding folks who are experiencing houselessness. And so we're feeding over a thousand people during the COVID-19 crisis a month. Uh, we're continuing to reach out and provide space for youth who are considered at risk or people who've given up on them by doing mentoring programs, by doing educational programs, by having a youth build at our parish as well. And so it's mixing the old and the young and realizing we can be a community together. And you were talking about historically where your church came from and the, the history of West Adams. You know, from then to now, how, how is the city of Los Angeles investing in Black communities and communities of color? Are we, are we falling short as a city? I mean, what does that look like? I think we are falling short as a city. I uh, have a member of my congregation who uh, she pulled out a book that's in the 1980s, uh, and it showed Black wealth and Black success in Los Angeles in the 1980s. And would you imagine it? Maybe it's not hard to imagine, but the unemployment rate in Black communities is pretty much the same. And so we are falling short. Uh, we saw that during uh, COVID-19, how Blacks were disproportionately dying at higher rates. And it's also because of the neighborhoods we live in, right? Uh, our neighborhoods are surrounded uh, by uh, highways, which means there's higher, uh, LA Times said, possibility for us to get asthma. Uh, there's oil drilling in our neighborhoods, right? Um, and so we have disparate health outcomes and we see that impacting the way our lives uh, play out uh, every single day, as well as uh, realizing that the wealth gap is immense in Los Angeles. Los Angeles and California in general is the richest and poorest state, I think, <laughs> in uh, America. Uh, and you see those very, very different outcomes just riding up the 10 freeway and what that looks like and how the neighborhoods change. And you had mentioned a moment ago, redlining. Mm -hmm. Redlining, is that still happening in Los Angeles and elsewhere? And for our listeners that might not know, what is redlining? Redlining was a system that was implemented really, some people like to say during the 50s and 60s, but I would say go further back than that, mainly until the turn of the century when you saw bankers basically get together and the, you know, the renters association and the real estate associations get together. And they basically drew line, red lines, stuff that's called redlining, <laughs> around certain neighborhoods and districts where they didn't want Black people to live. And so Reverend Lawson, who's a mentor of mine, reminds me that if you went to Burbank or Glendale, they would have signs that say, no Blacks allowed. We don't want Blacks living here. Uh, in L.A., where West Adams is, which used to be called Sugar Hill uh, back in the day, I have members who remind who are reminded that they couldn't cross Wilshire Avenue and, and buy a house, right? And so it's strategic disinvestment in Black community and locking us out from owning property and land and, and saying, oh, you're Black? Uh, you deserve to live in this neighborhood, regardless of how much money you make, regardless of the degrees you may have. Uh, you have to live in this part of town. And if you go beyond this part of town, then you're going to criminalize you. Uh, and that's what we've seen so often. And red gentrification is happening currently in uh, South LA. Uh, we see it uh, with the way that the housing market is breaking out uh, in West Adams. Uh, the neighborhood switched from white and Jewish to black in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And now we see more uh, white affluent folks moving back in and I'm having neighbors uh, tell me my family's owned this house for 30 or 40 years and now they're trying to kick me out of my own neighborhood. And we see that also with the kind of food that you see in the neighborhoods as well. So my wife does a lot of food justice work and we see food apartheid happening. That's also benefits of redlining or, uh, because you know South LA, we have to drive, right? You have to drive a couple of miles before you can find fresh food. Why is that? And they call that a food um, desert, right? Yeah, it's a food desert. Um, and it, it's very much a part of the system. It's a part of ways of oppression and control. It's another way of white supremacy showing itself. And we're seeing it. They just tried to sell the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Mall 
uh, and we know why, because they want to build more apartment buildings in uh, a live work play type area, which isn't for us because it would be price too, price too high. And so we know exactly what's going on in our neighborhoods and we're seeing it more and more and more. Uh, Crenshaw and Baldwin Hills is the last kind of like vanguard standhold, standstill of black community in LA city. And we've seen that disappearing very rapidly. And an, another area of, of control our, our police department and, and policing is historically rooted in racism. Uh, it started with the hunting down of black slaves in the United States. How does this, this history interfere with what is expected of, or I got, yeah, what is expected of our police force in present day, what we think they're supposed to do for us? Policing comes out of slave patrols in the South. Uh, and what that meant was uh, serve and protect. Well, who are you protecting and who are you serving? You're serving white landowners or slave masters and you're protecting their property. Black people, I remind everyone, was considered a three-fifth human in this country. And so they were property. They considered us property. And so when we dreamed beyond what they wanted us to dream, decided to run, decided to go for our freedom, to reclaim our humanity, they fit the slave patrols. Well, that evolved to policing, right? And so the very nature of policing is, in, real, in one real respect, is to protect white property and to control the minority. And we've seen that play out time and time again throughout history. And so we've seen that uh, during Jim Crow. Who enforced the laws of Jim Crow? The police, right? Uh, during Reconstruction, when they pulled the military out of the South, who enforced the laws? The police, right? Uh, during the 90s, when we saw things are beginning to shift a little bit, who did Bill Clinton say, I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you more and more police to police those people in those communities. So whether you call it the ghetto, underserved, uh, disenfranchised communities, it's all code for Black communities. And so when you see people running and saying law and order, they're basically saying, we need to go control this set of people. And so you're born knowing that you can't really trust police, right? From a young age, growing up in the South, I knew very well that police were not particularly my friend. Any interaction with police could end up being lethal because my skin is criminal to them. And they still see me in some ways in the culture, the way they operate as property. So we could do implicit bias training, but we have to do that because you automatically are used to hearing black man coming down the street, he's a threat. And they shouldn't have to have bias training, but they should have training in this area. And, but it's embedded, it's embedded into that culture that mm -hmm. they act in this sort of way. The, the other thing that, that is an issue as well is many issues, but that they're taking on multiple roles as well, correct? That they, there's the policing, but then they're also, there's supposed to be a social worker. They're supposed to catch animals. They're supposed to be doing all these other areas they, you know, that could be funded for people that are actually trained to do these jobs, medical workers. Absolutely, uh, Jess. I mean, the, the thing that is so frustrating to me, and uh, James Foreman writes about this in his book, Locking Up Our Own, but the frustrating thing to me is that we have lost our imagination. James Foreman writes in his book, Locking Up Our Own, is that we, instead of calling a mental health worker, instead of calling a social worker, instead of calling a dog catcher or someone who's trained in that or, or, or intervention, a, a violent intervention person, uh, we call the police. The police are not supposed to be social workers. The police are not the people you want to see come to a domestic violence dispute. The police is not someone who's having a mental health issue on the side of the street, the person who's supposed to come. A person with a gun does not de-escalate a situation, right? It, it makes you uh, more scared. It, it's a more of a threat, right? It's fear that is instilled in that moment. Is the rate of police brutality 
gaining momentum today? Or are we just seeing it more readily on social media? I think we're just able to fib it. Um, Black people have always known in this country that we have been criminalized. We've always known in this country that any interaction with the police can end up being lethal. The uh, reason why driving while Black is not, is a term in Black community is because it's truth, right? The reason why Metro stops us at five times the rate is because they think we're criminal, which is not true. And so I think having smartphones and recording it is putting on the screens of so many people immediately what Black people have been experiencing since slave patrols. And so I think just like in the 1960s when we saw dogs released onto protesters who were protesting for their rights like MLK and others, I think people seeing more and more the reality of living while Black in America uh, on people's phones, I think is making us have a, a moral reckoning. And I hope this nation takes note. And, you know, when I, you look into these cases, especially some of the more um, famous cases that are, that are, that are happening, that, that people are talking about right now, you find that it's extremely hard to prosecute the police officers. Why is that? It's hard to prosecute police officers because we have elevated police to this uh, position of untouchability. They have police unions, right? And so, or associations. And so they can, you know, literally kill someone and not care because they have so much, so many protections baked in that a doctor doesn't have, that a social worker doesn't have, a preacher doesn't have, a fireman uh, doesn't have, but we give it to the police. And so they can do violence. They have license to kill and perpetuate violence with no real repercussions because they know the worst thing that can happen to me is that I may get death duty or I may get suspended without pay, but I'll be back and then I'll make the community pay for, for the time that, I, that I've been let, off, let go of work. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ecojustice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. Reverend Edward L. Anderson, social activist and ordained minister serving McCarty Memorial Christian Church in West Adams, Los Angeles, is discussing the people's budget and reimagining public safety. Reverend, in Los Angeles, you are part of a movement advocating that the city council adopt a people's budget. Before we get into the, the details of what that specifically entails for Los Angeles, overall, what does it mean to have a people's budget specifically compared to what we currently have today in the city of Los Angeles or even elsewhere? Uh, what a people's budget means is to have a participatory uh, budgeting process. Uh, right now, the budgeting process is very much closed. Um, and it's our tax dollars, but we don't really get to decide where the money goes. And so the people's budget process says, wait a second, we are paying the taxes, we are giving the money. Shouldn't we have a say-so on how our money is spent? I don't write checks, like checks to people and just tell them to figure out how to use it, right? So we shouldn't be doing that with our budget either. And so the People's Budget LA is saying, let's examine uh, the process of how we are coming up with budgets and it shouldn't be in the hands of few, it should be in the hands of the many. And where did this concept of the people's budget come from? And, and who are the organizations that are, are, are driving this forward? The people's budget came from BLMLA. So Dr. Melina Abdullah, other organizers, uh, Baba Akili, others have been for the last five years been saying, wait, why are we uh, investing in the military industrial complex in Los Angeles through police militarization? Why are we doing this? Um, and so they got together a coalition. They reached out to folks like me, who I represent LA Voice and Purpose Campaign, but as a reverend, uh, they reached out to K-Town for All, for Ground Game LA, to the Justice Collaborative, to the ACLU. And they, to Community Coalition, asked, hey, can't we do something about this? Uh, now I think is the time, especially during a global pandemic, uh, that we could really ask the question, why are we investing so much into the police when we're in the middle of a global pandemic where we need health care? People don't have food. 
people can't pay the rent. Why are we giving the police a raise and furloughing essential workers? That doesn't make sense to us. And so we asked the question and it's gaining traction uh, in Los Angeles. And how big is that, that budget that the city of Omaha, we're one of the largest cities in the world. How big is our budget? What, what does it fund? And where is that biggest allocation? Our budget in LA City is $11 billion, around $11 billion. Think about that. That's what the beat. And it's uh, funding everything from how do we fix the roads when we have a pothole to who cut, who, how do we make sure the lights are turned on on the streets to when you call 311 and you need senior meals to libraries to make sure that you have technology, all of that. And then fire departments and also the police. Uh, we're funding that as well. We're supposed to be funding economic development and making sure our communities in this big, wonderful city of Los Angeles are well-funded as well. How big is that, that police department budget? The police budget is $3.1 billion, uh, which we estimate is around 54% of the budget. And as a pastor, I have to say, if budgets are moral documents, you know, um, the Bible says uh, where your heart is and your treasure is, it's, it's also then we really are just loving police and not so much the people who are police are supposed to be protecting in the first place. And who, so the city of Los Angeles, they have this $11 billion budget, right? And 50% of it or more is going to the police force. Who gets to decide that? Who has that oversight? If it's not the community, who has oversight and approval of the city's budget? Well, the way the budget works is that the mayor writes a letter that says, here are my priorities. And then his, the city departments um, then get a chance to submit their budgets, what they think they need for uh, the year. And then the mayor has a budgeting office who creates a budget. And then they submit that budget to city council. And the city council has a budget and finance committee. And their job is to discuss the budget and then pass the budget. And if they just try not to do that, uh, they could just do a unanimous vote on June 1st, and then the budget has to go into effect. And so the People's Budget LA came out because we realized, wait, they're not meeting at city council. Mm-hmm. They're not talking about the budget. Oh, wait, they want to do this by unanimous consent? Wait a second, we're not consenting to this budget in the middle of a global pandemic. So that's the People's Budget LA came from. And uh, the people's budget is a, is community members, right? It's a community member's budget. So it's, it's vital in understanding what they want to focus on. How did all these groups go about engaging the community and assessing those needs of the, of the community and what they wanted to, um, you know, what their final request was? We uh, have engaged to date 18,000 Angelinos in a survey, a community survey, which basically adds what is your priority level for how we fund things? Taking the big buckets that the budget usually uh, funds and asking, what's your priority level? What do you think, how much money should go to police? How much money should go to fire? How much money should go to our built environment? Um, what do you think is, prior, is, is important for Los Angeles? And so we did that as well as engage folks through town hall meetings, engage folks through Twitter and social media, which when you do that total, it's over 32,000 people. We've trended in the country on Twitter a couple of times as well, getting people involved around where do you want to see your money go and why are we not funding what the people want? And, and what were the results? What did the community come out saying, this is what we want to allocate our funding towards more and this is what we want less in los angeles we know that we have the second highest rate of homelessness in the country and so unsurprisingly most people said we want to see money go towards housing we're in the middle of a global pandemic let's get people off the streets and let's figure out how to help people pay rent on their mortgages that's the major crisis and then we saw people say after that, let's make sure libraries have technology. Let's make sure we have parks and green space and the roads are fixed in Los Angeles. And let's make sure that uh, the first responders 
I like uh, the fire department and essential workers who are uh, keeping us uh, fed and sheltered and healthy uh, during this global pandemic, they actually are well-funded to do their job. Why is it that during a global pandemic, we weren't able to get healthcare and testing up to speed in Los Angeles? Why is it that people weren't, weren't able to pay their rent and the city wasn't able to come online and help with that? Why is it that so many small businesses, especially in South Los Angeles, but across the city, are closing down and never to open their doors again in the city didn't have money to help. But yet the police had way more money. And so actually the community said, we can fund the police, but around 6%. And the larger Black Lives Matter movement for Black Lives is asking, why don't we just defund the police and reinvest in community? And we're gonna get into that in a second. And just to uh, talk about the people's budget just for a couple more minutes here. Is there a final allocation? Is there like, this is the people's budget that's being proposed to the city of Los Angeles? What does that look like, if so? Yes, Jess, I'm glad to announce here that on Monday, June 15th, uh, we've been working, we sent a letter to the Budget and Finance Committee um, after many protests on social media and in person. And so there will be a special session that City Hall is going to have in person we will be presenting the results and data of the people's budget and the priorities of Angelinos to the city council president, to the budget and finance chairperson, as well as some departments uh, in the city to let them know this is what Angelinos want and we should try to meet that need. And I think this show is going to air just a little bit after that, that budget so or that meeting. So once that meeting happens... Because then people are going to be like, okay, that meeting just happened. What can Angelinos and others do to um, get to the next step? What's the next step in the process? What do we need to do in order to make sure that the people's budget moves through? You can call your city council person um, and call the mayor and say, we know you've heard about the people's budget. We know you've been presented the people's budget. You know that our, what our priorities for the city looks like now. How about we do the hard work in the rest of the month of June uh, before July 1 hits and even in July to make the adjustments to fund the things that this city needs? That's to say uh, to to the city council, we want to be serious about homelessness. We just saw today that the homeless count came out. And what people want to say is, oh, we expected the numbers to go up because we're in the middle of a pandemic. But here's the thing, Jess, the homeless count is done in January. It's not done <laughs> in March or April. And so the numbers were already going up. And so if we are serious about homelessness and houselessness in our city, if we're serious about economic development in our city, then let's call our mayor, call your city council person and say, adopt the people's budget, shift the priorities, we do not want to see over 50% of our budget going to police. We want to see majority of our money going to help people in the middle of a global pandemic as we get ready for relief and recovery and rebirth of Los Angeles. And when the when the budget was being discussed, the, the mayor of Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti, proposed originally that he wanted a 7% increase in the LAPD, the Los Angeles P- Police Department, for people who are not in LA. He wanted a 7% increase in the budget. And then there was pushback. And people started talking about the people's budget. And LA City Council member Nuri Martinez and other council members said, okay, so we're proposing a hundred million to 150 million cut from the LAPD budget. And when this was announced, there's people on both sides. Some people were like, this is a really great start. Let's, you know, this is awesome. And then there was other people who were um, against it and the police unions. But when the Los Angeles City Council budget is 10.5, 5 billion, 11 billion dollars, and 3.15 billion of that is being allocated to the Los Angeles Police Department. Is 150 million dollars enough of a cut, or is that just a drop in the bucket? It's a drop in the bucket, and it's really just saying like we're trying to give you something to appease you. But but let's think about this 150 million dollars 
out of 11 billion. Mm -hmm. That's for everyday person. If you had a hundred dollar bill, you literally just told folks, I'll give you 10 cents. Now go and make your life better with this 10 cents. It's disrespectful, honestly, to say that to the people that you're, you're not prioritized. So while it's a step in the right direction, it's not a substantial investment to move the needle for improvement in our city, for Black lives, for mm -hmm. people across the city who have been just trying to survive, right? It is estimated that a Black woman in Los Angeles spends 70% of her money on rent. Now, if we had real investment in the city and real social services that were a real safety net for folks in our city, she wouldn't have been safe for sending her money on rent. She'll be doing other things that will make her just not survive, but thrive. And so the question for the mayor is, do I want to live in a city where all Angelinos can truly thrive? If so, there's a way to fund it because we have the money. And the... Um People's budget, you know, it, it calls also on serious police reform and reimagination. What is meant by defund the police? I think there's a lot of misconceptions on what that means and a lot of confusion and anger and whatever all that is. And what does reimagination look like? Absolutely. And that's a wonderful question. Uh, defund the police is simply what it means. We're going to take money from policing and invest it in communities. That's the, that's the very basic part. Um, from an abolitionist standpoint, it, it means when Harriet Tubman ran from the woods to get people free and to help abolish slavery, she meant for all systems of white supremacy to go with it. But we know slave patrols and policing is a system that continued. We know that we traded plantations for prisons in adopted the 13th Amendment. And so uh, defunding the police says, let's not invest in a military industrial complex, which we started doing in the 50s, and let's reinvest in the neighborhood. Let's reinvest in people who are frontline workers who are qualified, who have gone to school or got the training to meet the needs that we need immediately right now. So let's pay social workers. Let's hire Bob the dog catcher back. Let's hire someone who knows how we have trauma-informed centers in our neighborhood. If you want to get rid of gun violence, put trauma-informed centers in the neighborhood, right? If you want people to have better education, which is true public safety, right? Then let's make sure that, you know, high schools in Los Angeles aren't using uh, used textbooks. Make let's make sure the libraries have internet and books that people can use so people can have true access to technology. Let's make sure that there's food in the grocery stores as we're not having food apartheid and making sure that farmers are funded in a way where they can uh, feed uh, the city. We can do all of that for public safety. Crime happens when you believe there's not enough resources for you and your family to eat, to, to exist, to thrive, right? And so let's debunk this, this mystery, that this myth that police is what makes us safe in a different way we can live. Reverend, when, when looking at reinvestment of funds, what are the short and long-term uh, goals? Yeah, so Black LA, uh, 50 leaders got together in Black LA and released demands around funding and prioritization during global pandemic. Because global pandemic really pretty much exposed the wound of racism and how much white supremacy has uh, disinvested in Black community. And so short term, it was very simple. We need healthcare and we need jobs. <laughs> and the way you get healthcare is to invest in building clinics, to invest in the hospitals. We have one major hospital in South Los Angeles. And that one hospital- One major hospital. One For major how hospital. many people? Over 2 million. 
And so MLK Hospital is still fighting for funding. We can do something about that, right? We could put more clinics in South LA. We can make sure people have healthcare and it is a human right. And we can make sure folks have housing, right? And make sure that they have somewhere to lay their head at night. And if you have healthcare and housing, the world becomes a lot safer for everyone around mm-hmm. us. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. Reverend Edward L. Anderson, social activist and ordained minister serving McCarty Memorial Christian Church in West Adams, Los Angeles, is discussing the people's budget and reimagining public safety. So, Reverend, you were talking about the short and long-term goals for reinvestment, reinvestment of funds under the people's budget. What are the long-term goals? The long-term goal is how do we build out sustainable infrastructure that uh, supports a economy of care. And so that looks like how are we making sure that we are making substantial investment in uh, business in Los Angeles, uh, black and brown owned businesses of color. How do we make sure that store owners can get loans, that we're making sure that uh, property owners are able to, to live and, and have a good existence for their family and have green space around? How do we make sure um, that we are funding for the long term um, that, you know, our streets are repaired? How do we make sure that when we talk about public safety, that uh, social workers are becoming a first line of defense in our uh, community? Because a lot of the problems that we see police responding to are social disputes, right? It's, It's like, domestic violence or, oh, we had miscommunication, right? So how do we find uh, social workers who can respond or interventionists who can respond? And how do we make sure that when folks come back out of uh, prison and jail that they have a a safe community to return to, right? And so these long-term investments are the same investments that we've had long-term budget cuts and disinvestment from. And so we saw healthcare be cut. We saw uh, educational opportunities be cut. We've seen business opportunities shrink in our community. And we're saying, if you want to fix the community, if you want to make sure our community is whole again, you got to make long-term investments into those exact areas that you've been disinvesting from for the last 40 to 50 years in Black communities. And those Black Los Angeles demands where do people find them? I believe they're on BLM LA. You can find the uh, Black LA Demands. It's comprised from a group of 50 leaders. So that's faith leaders. It's Black Women for Wellness. It's Black Labor. You know, we notice in Black Labor, uh, they're building uh, Metro, is building a train right down the middle of Crenshaw. And the biggest complaint from the community is, where are the Black workers, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> you know, is the construction a good job? Why are we working in our own community, right? And so labor came uh, to the table. Uh, academics came to the table. So we had professors at the table. We had researchers from UCLA at the table. So I would invite you to look at the Black LA demand and look at, we separated uh, short-term and long-term investment goals, uh, and it covers all of the industries that I just talked about. Great. Thank you. And I, yeah, it's, it's easy to find. It's right there. We're going to link it as well in our blog when we post the show. And so people can go directly to the link and, and pull it up. And I really do recommend that our, our listeners, please take the moment and read the list on social media. There is a campaign that is called eight can't wait that specifies eight things that cities can do to reform their police department. What do you feel about the eight can't wait campaign and, and, and what's the issue with just focusing on eight can't wait? I think eight can't wait is undermining the moment of the movement right now. I think we're at a critical heart check moment in our nation. I think we're at a third reconstruction moment in our nation. These moments don't come around very often. They come around maybe every 60 to 100 years. And when those moments come, we don't ask for breadcrumbs. We make transformative systematic changes. Dr. King 
didn't say stop beating me. Dr. King said, we want integration, we want voting rights, and we want housing and economic justice. We want it now, right? We just don't want you to just put your billy club away. We want you to see us as human. Abolitionists didn't say, oh, slavery is okay. Just let some of us go free and have our breaks and we want to have it, right? That's not what abolition an abolition movement was about in this country. It can't wait literally uh, says uh, we can reform a system that we've been trying to reform for the last 100 years, right? In LA, eight can't wait is really three can't wait because the LAPD does five of them already. But yet we still see the gang database uh, being fabricated more. We still see black people being stopped five times the rate of white folks in the city. We still see over 601 officer-involved shootings in Los Angeles. And Jess, I have to tell you, uh, if you would have asked me two years ago if AK Wait was a good idea, I may have said yes. Because at that time, Trust Talks LA, we were having conversations uh, with police officers and talking about reform and, and training and hiring and implicit bias uh, training and de-escalation uh, training, but then an officer uh, said to me, he says, that's nice, but what really trains a police officer is a beat cop on the street. It's the drive arounds that we get. And all that you are trying to do is not going to work because not a part of our culture. And when I heard that, it clicked for me. There is no reforming. There is a need for a dismantling and starting afresh. There is a need for us to look at what does public safety look like and not dream about it in the language of oppression, which we have been fed since our birth. And so eight can't wait is problematic because it literally just says like, oh, we can train our way out of this. We can uh, learn our way out of this. But I will remind you in Los Angeles, we've been here time and time again. We were here in the 70s. And what did we say? We'll do community-oriented policing. And we got the crack epidemic and things got worse. Uh, after the cassette decree, after Rodney King was beat and the LA riots happened in 92, what did we see? Oh, we'll do reform and community-based uh, policing. And here's how we'll do implicit bias training. And we'll train our way and hire our way out of this problem. It did not work. In the 2000s, uh, we saw that another consent decree was basically given to L.A., and our chief Moore was a part of the department at the time. And what did we see? Oh, we'll do the same exact reforms that we did in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, right? And we are back in the same place. So it's time out for reform. Reform is not what is going to move us forward because the police officer told the truth. It's not about the training that officers get. It's what they learn on the street as beat cops. And what they learn on the street as beat cops is the same culture that says criminalize black people, criminalize uh, brown people, um, and to lead with aggression first, and we'll talk about the rest later. That system no longer serves us. I'll tell you, uh, one of the things that really hit this home for me was during protests, uh, we were leading protests. LAPD shows up military gear and batons and rubber bullets and starts shooting at us on 3rd and Fairfax. A couple of days later, uh, we see as the looting and stuff started to happen and start to die down, there was looting happening in Van Nuys. A Black family tries to stop the police officers to say, hey, look, this store is getting robbed. Isn't this your job to protect property? The Black family gets arrested and the person walks away. What is wrong with our system? is that the very core of policing, the very core of policing as we know it in this country has Black people as criminal. Yeah. And that badge is not a badge of trust. That badge is a badge that says to every single person, it reminds us of, of the control that the government and the state wants to have over our bodies. 
And so we have to get rid of that system and create a system that the economy of care, yes, with emergency responders, yes, with uh, public safety as a very paramount objective, but this right here is not public safety. Reverend, you have helped lead what is called the new Poor People's Campaign. And I, I could explain what the Poor People's Campaign is, the original one, but I actually, I, I, I'd like you to explain it. And um, also, can you describe what the, the purpose of the new Poor People's Campaign is and how that's uh, connected to the people's budget? In 1968, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others, Ella Baker, James Lawson, others, um, got together poor whites, uh, Latinos, and uh, Puerto Ricans, and farmers, and they started mobilizing for a march on uh, Washington to really highlight that there are two Americas. Uh, there's one America where everything is fine and we can paint the American dream, whether that's your white picket fence or your, or your nice job, X, Y, and then there's another America where people go to sleep at night with uh, their bellies rumbling. And so Dr. King said, we have to address the systematic evils at that time of racism, of militarism, and also of, of, around uh, consumerism in this, in this nation. And we've added eco ecological devastation in the Newport People's Campaign or Public Campaign National Call for More Revival and our Reverend William Barber list, Leo Harris, which now is in 45 states. And uh, we have been working to say that poverty is the greatest violence we've seen in America. That does not matter if you're Democrat or Republican, policy violence is the thing that is choking the life out of our democracy. We estimate in the Poor People's Campaign that there are 145 million poor or low wealth people in this country. In California, that's one in four children who are poor. That's one in four women who are poor. And disproportionately, that rate uh, looks like there's a lot of poor whites in, in California as well as black and undocumented folks. And so we're saying we're a moral revival who is literally reviving and resurrecting what Dr. King could not finish because a bullet uh, assassinated him because he started talking about this very issue, this issue that poverty and the wealth gap and the class battle in our nation, it is what is killing our democracy. And so the Portland's campaign, we've been mobilizing. We have a big march. Well, we were going to have a big march in D.C., but now it's a large gathering on June 20th, 2020. Go to poorpeoplescampaign.org and you will see that. You will also see uh, demands around a moral budget and what it means for us to have budgets that are more documents and disinvest from on the national scale from the military industrial complex, just how in the people's budget we want to disinvest from the police militarization uh, complex and really make housing a human right. Make uh, everyone have the right for a living wage, uh, not just a $15, but a living wage. A $15 in LA is not going to do that much for you, right? Uh, and so have a, a living wage to make sure we are addressing ecological devastation. We shouldn't have oil drilling plants in urban areas. We shouldn't have it in America where 4 million people every day wake up in Detroit, in Flint, Michigan, without unleaded water, but they can get unleaded gas, right? Mm -hmm. These are problems that the nation has not uh, dealt with, right? We know climate change is real. We believe in science. <laughs> so climate change is real. And we know that when the, the environment changes and we have hurricanes and earthquakes, the people who really have to deal with the disproportionate impact on their lives are black and brown people. Oftentimes, uh, they are, are left behind. And so in the Forbes campaign, we're saying enough is enough. Everybody has the right to live, not only to live, but to thrive in this country, and that we should live up to our creed, our creed of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in America. At the time of this recording, 
COVID-19 restrictions are slowly lifting and you've been talking about the protests and what people are calling the largest civil rights movement in global history because there's all of these cities globally that are taking part. What are your thoughts of this, these actions that are happening of this global movement and how do you see that resulting in the reimagination that you were speaking to? The fact that we're in a global pandemic and folks are able, are willing to risk their health and their livelihood to decry the injustice in the street, that gives me great hope that although this virus takes away our breath, although we're in the street because George Floyd yelled, I can't breathe, and called to his dead mother for help, that we as a people can breathe a new life into our democracy. That we as a people can breathe healthcare into our democracy, can breathe housing as a human right into our democracy, can breathe a zero carbon footprints into our democracy. And we can do it now. And we have a pathway forward. Uh, and we can say we can abolish police brutality now. And so I think the momentum comes from, uh, for me, it's spiritual in that I say, you know, COVID-19 had us all locked inside. And so now the whole world eyes are on the biggest sin that America has never repented for. And so we should not go home until America repents. Has the people's budget been adopted or considered in other cities or, or countries? Um, and if a community is interested in adopting the people's budget for their city, what is your advice? My advice is that you look at people's budget LA and look at our process. No, this is, this is a long-term fight. This fight, as I mentioned, from BLM LA has been running for about five years. Um, but there are other cities. So New York, Minneapolis uh, are, are two cities I know of who are investigating on what this looks like and what it truly looks like to divest from police. San Francisco is looking at how do we divest as well. And so, the, so the question for organizing the ground is how are we engaging our community and asking them and having hearings around what their priorities are? Every city is different. LA is unique because we have $11 billion. Maybe your city only has $50 million for your whole city budget. But the question is, uh, have you asked your people what our priorities are? Mm-hmm. And after doing that, how you connect with folks on the ground who have been doing this work for years to make sure that they are the ones who are funded and that we are centering people who are at the bottom. And oftentimes that's Black life. So how are we making sure that Black lives matter? Not just a catchphrase, but actually an investment. Yeah. And we're um, we're almost at time here for the radio version of Ecojustice Radio, but we're going to continue this conversation. So if you're listening as a podcast, y'all just keep listening. And if you're listening via radio, go go tune into Ecojustice Radio and listen to a longer version of this because we have a few more topics that we want to talk with Reverend Eddie about. But to finish it out, Reverend what are further resources that you would like to share? What can people do right now to get information? I would suggest you look at, uh, on a local level, BLM LA has been great work for movement of Black Lives. National level, Movement for Black Lives uh, has a website around what they're doing. Uh, local organizations like LA Voice, Community Coalition, LA Can are great places to look to see what's happening. And then always perform this campaign. And if you like, you can follow me on Instagram. It's Eddie L. Anderson. And you can see some of the work we're doing there as well. I will put all of that in our information in the uh, social media posts as well as the blog. So thank you everyone for listening. And if you want to hear more of this conversation, please go to, if you're not listening um, to our SoundCloud, Spotify version, please head over there and listen to the remainder of this conversation. So Reverend Eddie, you had mentioned it before, what, just to dive a little bit deeper, what is that connection between the climate crisis and racism? Yeah, you know, and climate crisis shows up in various ways. So one, African-Americans have asthma at a higher rate uh, than our white counterparts. 
Why is that? Because of smog in the air, because of the way our neighborhoods are placed next to highways, right? And so we have more pollution. Oil drilling has affected the quality of, of our water uh, in South LA and in Black communities across this country as well. Um, the fact that uh, my dear brother, uh, Morehouse brother, lives in Cancer Alley in Louisiana, and they are noticing because we have basically like these power plants there in the Black community and is okay for folks to be, uh, not okay, but I guess for some people it's okay for them to let their uh, bio waste uh, go, go there uh, and chemical waste go there. They have a higher rate of cancer. And so people are dying at a higher rate. Um, you saw in Flint, Michigan, the water has lead in it because we haven't taken the precautions to actually do the environmental impacts to make sure we're not laying pipe and building buildings on bad land, on unhealthy soil, right? And so uh, the food that we eat even, right? Um, uh, my wife, you know, works in food justice and she's always talking about the importance of soil, right? And making sure that the soil that we have is healthy. Well, if we have chemical waste, if we have bio waste in the soil, right, then it affects how the food grows. And then that goes into our bodies. And then that <laughs> makes us uh, sicker and we die at higher rates and our life expectancy is shortened. And Besides that, it heats up the environment. And so we know uh, climate change is real. And so the ice caps continue to melt. And so when that comes, we have weather that affects us. So Hurricane Katrina, uh, we saw the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico. Uh, these things, fires that are showing up and, and displacing folks, these things are really impactful on Black and brown communities where we don't have uh, the wealth and the safety net to recover and respond as quick as some of our white counterparts and brothers and sisters. And so the environmental impact then compounds with economic impact. And then you see people living uh, in poverty or just living to survive across the country. And then on, on top of that, you mentioned it before, this access to healthcare. You know, when you're when you're having these issues, you know, it might be it might be easy for someone who's in a different position to be like, well, I'm going to go to the doctor and I have insurance. And if I, you know, if I get sick, then I can be treated for that. And if I get um, some disease in my water, I can be treated for that. Or mm -hmm. if I, you know, unfortunately get cancer, maybe I can be treated for that. Maybe I can afford to be treated for that. But it, it seems that in disenfranchised communities, you know, access to affordable health care is, is, is not accessible. Yeah, it's not readily accessible. It's hard to find clinics that have high quality of care in Black communities a lot of times, um, regardless of how much money you make. Uh, the myth is, oh, well, if you work hard and make a lot of money, uh, then you'll have all the things. Well, where's the doctor for folks who live in Baldwin Hills, Windsor Park, which is some mm -hmm. of the richest Black neighborhoods in the country? They still have to drive all the way to the west side to see the Sinai <laughs> for health care. They still have to drive to Culver City for healthcare. They have to drive to Watts, basically, to MLK Hospital. So it's not about how much money you make. It's about mm -hmm. access. And so as long as the system is closed and the options that we get are lower quality, right, uh, folks don't know how much money you have when you walk into the to the room. And I when I when I walk into a room, no one sees on my forehead that I have two or three degrees, <laughs> right? No one no one cares. They see a black person, so they may assume I don't have any money. So they instead of giving me the best treatment, they give me what they think I can afford, and that what I can afford may be end up in death for me, or it may be fatal uh, for me. And so that's a problem in our country, in our nation, and we, we have to wrestle with that. Because that's, you know, as you said, Jess, you know, if you get sick from the water, where are you going to go to get treatment? And will they even give you the medicine that you need? Yeah. 
You had also mentioned that the third reconstruction, what does that mean? Yeah, I think a, th- a third reconstruction means a recalibration of our nation. And so when we saw uh, the, the first reconstruction happen, we saw great leaps in social services. So when slaves were freed, well, uh, are freed and uh, we had the first reconstruction, we saw more black people get elected to office. So South Carolina almost had an entire black legislate, legislator. We saw black folks go to Congress and to the Senate. And what we also saw was that there was education. So the idea of us having uh, pre-K through 12 comes from Reconstruction, right? That wasn't a common thing in America, right? That comes from Reconstruction. Uh, the idea of healthcare, right? Universal healthcare. That was first Reconstruction ideas, right? And we saw these programs become, become reality for so many people across this country during that time period. But when we saw the Southern strategy become being implemented and the right to vote stripped from Black folks, we saw us go back. And then we saw the second Reconstruction, where we saw housing rights and voting rights and integration and things like affirmative action and trying to do district busting happening. Second Reconstruction. Everyone knows that from the 40s all the way to the 68, 70. And so third reconstruction says we can actually have healthcare for all. It's not a crazy idea. It's happening in this in the world. America, we've actually almost had it before. We can have it again. We can actually have education, like affordable and free education in this country, right? Uh, we can actually have a place where police brutality is not the order of the day in our country, and we can do it now. And a third reconstruction says we have the we have the momentum and we have the moral courage and will to have fusion movement politics, where it's not the NAACP and Black Lives Matter and SCLC are only talking about Black people issues, that we all realize, hey, look, if Black people are really taken care of in our economy, that affects all of us. So we want to affect climate change? Go on the street and say Black Lives Matter and realize that when we get rid of racial injustice, ecological racial injustice, it will do send the climate change movement into 20 years ahead of where we are right now because we have the, the moral will and fortitude to push forward in this moment. So third reconstruction just says, Let's be the social architects. Let's be the dreamers and the builders who actually put into place systems that we know are attainable. During the political campaigns, we heard everyone has a plan. Now let's actually put into into practice the most radical ideas because they're not that radical actually, they're just human dignity. Anything else that you want to add before we we wrap up here today? Um, <laughs> not, 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 not really. I mean, uh, I, I always like to talk about the DA race, but that's not this conversation. So. <laughs> well, we can bring you back for many conversations. We're, we're definitely down for that. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for continuing this conversation with us here today and for sharing your words and, and, um, and your passion and, and your love. I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. And thank you to our listeners for, for sticking with us. Thank you to our guest today, Reverend Edward L. Anderson. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been the People's Budget and Reimagining Public Safety. Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and my nonprofit is Adventures and Waste. If you like what you've heard and you want others to be informed, Please subscribe to the podcast, share the episodes, tell people to tune in. We're here for you. 
Thank you to our guest today, Reverend Edward L. Anderson, and thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us. This has been the People's Budget and Reimagining Public Safety. Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste, my nonprofit. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, subscribe to the podcast, share the episodes. You have been listening to EcoJustice Radio, recorded at KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morse, executive producer Jack Eye, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.